0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
1: everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ask Strong Towns, your bi-monthly chance to ask me, Kia Wilson, and my friend Chuck Marone here anything that's on your mind about how to make your town stronger or what's the deal with this whole Strong Towns movement thing. Um, so I, again, am Kia. This is my friend Chuck. And uh, if you haven't done one of those, I see we got 20 some people here. We got another 30 some people registered. So I'll jabber a little bit while people are trickling in, but I'll tell you a little bit about how this works. So Ask Storm Towns is basically our answer to the persistent problem of running a national movement of how do we answer people's questions in a way that doesn't just benefit the person that we are answering, but also the entire movement. Because a lot of the problems that you're dealing with in your unique place are very similar in some ways to things that people are dealing with in other cities. And we don't want all that knowledge to get buried and lost. So we put together Ask Strong Towns. And what we do, if you're a veteran, this will all be familiar to you. But since we're first one post member drive. I suspect we have some new folks in here. We um, collect some pre-submitted questions that um, I'm going to kick us off with here in just a moment. You are also welcome to submit your questions live. If you're watching this live, you can uh, look at that little Q&A button. It should be on the bottom or the left of your screen. That's the place to put your question. A few tips on how to phrase that question to up your chances of getting it answered here today. Try to generalize it a little bit. We know your town is extremely unique But if instead of asking about, you know, Route 75 in Skokie, Illinois, go ahead and ask about, you know, highway projects generally in a big picture sense. Feel free to give us a few details, but think about how it's going to be portable to other places. I also recommend that brevity of the soul of wit keep it short if it's many many paragraphs we're probably not going to have time to read it today um and last but not least please try to avoid putting those q a's in the chat function that's for you guys to talk about how good we look, and oh gosh, I wonder what that book on Chuck's shelf is, (laughs) and um, all that kind of a a thing. So I see one live Q&A already coming in, so I'm ready to kick it off if you are, Chuck.
0: Yeah, I think before we do, um, I want to say hi to the Monterey Bay Economic Partnership who Bo told us is watching, got together to all watch it as a group today. So that's really, really cool. Thank you for doing that.
1: I love that, and I really encourage anyone else watching to stage your own watch party. And if you're really nice like Monterey Bay, buy everybody lunch. It sounds like they're all enjoying a nice meal, so to them too. Good good call. All right, I'm going to kick it off with a question that we got from uh, Gail McCormick in Perth, Ontario, that I thought was really interesting, especially in light of what we've published this week. So Gail asks, given how divided opinions can be, how can a strong town create the right balance between maintenance and safety? Safety, yet, still allow for character and uniqueness. I.e., does every weed need to be pulled, every partridge pruned up like a lollipop, every cement crack repaired, graffiti removed, streetlights made too bright, and webcams installed everywhere? In the quest for stewardship of our towns, and that sense I will add personally of um, a place that's lovable and invites care, do we risk creating an environment that becomes too sterile? And again, I will add too Disney fied, since I know that this one is probably inspired by a piece you wrote earlier this week, Chuck, about yeah. how in uh, Disney World, in Florida, you notice some cement cracks that were being tended to lovingly. Um, I think Gail, the soul of Gail's question to me is when does that sort of obsessive care become sterility and do we need to be mindful of that? I am curious to hear your thoughts on wow. this Wow.
0: Well, I would, I would love to get to where that's a problem.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> that, would, that would be fantastic. Um, generally, we have the exact opposite problem, which is like systematic neglect and decline. Um, I, I do feel like there's a certain uh, tension. Um, for example, I, I think you went with me once to Celebration Florida, right? I gave yep. you, okay, so I gave you a tour of that along with uh, some of the other people on our team. And uh, there's a lot of people who hate celebration and and really don't like like new urbanist developments, especially the newer ones, because they feel uh, sterile. They feel like not nice. And I've always struggled with that that characterization because it's like, uh, we like our cities. I've got a bunch of uh, friends like this. Like, we like our cities gritty and we like our cities, you know, that are real and authentic. And I'm like, great we like our cities with like trash strewn on the ground and weeds (laughs) overgrown. And like, okay, like there's some people who like that. And that's like authentic for them. That feels like home. Um, I'm not one of those people. Like I like things nice. I mean, I don't mind if they sweep the sidewalks and I don't mind if they pick up the trash and pull the weeds. Um, Our emphasis, and I think, you know, what I talk about in the book and uh, in, in other places, this week was my intention to bring this up, is that we, um, we tend to treat maintenance the same with, with kind of the same kinetic efficiency approach that we treat everything else. Uh, so maintenance becomes something that we schedule out. It's something that's put into a backlog. We allow things to fall apart and decline and not function well. And then we get to a point where, like, that justifies a big project, and then we go out and do the big project. And if you want your city to be gritty, if you want your city to be, uh, you know, a a little, a little more rough around the edges, I don't really care. Like, that's fine with me. Um, I think the emphasis that I have is like, why let it fall apart before we fix it? Like, why does it have to go all the way bad? Before we go out and get a bond and do a big mega project to fix it, so I, I I feel like there's a there's a personal preference side of this that the question's kind of getting at, and I don't point to me the number of places in this country that are too sterile. Like I like I can't find. I mean, there's like a handful, and they they do tend to be like theme parks and other things like that. Yeah. Um, show me the cities where they're falling apart from neglect of basic things and people's basic needs are going unmet because we just don't have a way of, of dealing with routine maintenance. And to me, that's like every city in North America. Um, I respect the question, but I, I, I feel like it's, I, I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's not relevant in a sense to like most public spaces today. Mm.
1: Well, I want to add something just as someone who does like, gritty spaces a little bit more. Um, for folks who don't know us, Chuck is from a very beautiful, crystalline part of Minnesota, and I live in St. Louis, Missouri, and I've um, spent most of my life in the urban Midwest and really love neighborhoods that have uh, not a lot of maintenance done on them, um, but do have a lot of personality. I'm that person with the front yard that is full of native plants that are a little unwieldy, and my next door neighbor has like seven neatly pruned hostas. But I really care about my yard, and I think that for me, the Strong Towns message of um, how can we create places that are lovable and have care can actually, you know, leave more room for personality and um, individual expression in the way that we create our places. We talk a lot about fine-grained urbanism is a term we use frequently, which is about like creating streetscapes where, you know, we can build the entire street, not all at once to a finished state in the style that is happy and selling right now, but across generations and constantly modifying it, constantly making it special. And, you know, yeah, you can pull the weeds that are a little ugly to you and you can leave the ones that have purple flowers. Those are the ones I leave up and I pretend they're a part of my intentional landscaping. So um, I just wanted to add a sort of a finer point on it for me, which is that care and grittiness and care and personality are absolutely um, compatible in our places, at least from my experience.
0: Right. But you're out maintaining stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the to me, like the, uh, the, the, what we have now is this like slide towards Dystopian, like we're not gonna, we're not gonna maintain this stuff. And I think there's a certain like nostalgic grittiness that happens in part of that. But like, why? What you want the street maintained and the sidewalks yeah. maintained and the street lights fixed? Um, I don't care if you got funky plants. I mean, it's not like a big deal to me. But if if you know, like everything around you is falling apart, uh, not very helpful.
1: Yeah. Well, good reality check there. Let's go on to another question that will uh plunge us back to reality as well. It's one that we've answered in other forms before, but I like the emphasis on this one from Beryl Diane Davis. Have you found, Chuck, that areas with conservative voters are more likely to buy into strong towns than a liberal voter area or vice versa? We talk a lot about strong towns about how proud we are to be a um, multi-partisan movement and a non-partisan movement, kind of depending on the conversation that we're having. you and I identify politically very, very differently and we get along great. Um, but this idea of liberal and conservative voter areas, I'm curious, like what sort of responses you get when you go to those very different places, especially in election years, like for a lot of localities, this one is.
0: Right, um, I think anytime you, you touch on a question like this, you are talking very broad brush. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot of nuance in this. And I think one thing that I've come to respect is that, for the most part, the liberal conservative starts to break down the closer you get to the block level. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, like, libertarians at the block level. There's not a lot of, you know, I, I, I think that things kind of break down when humans rub up against each other in a very close way on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, if you just take like the red and blue broad brush kind of thing, when I go to places that tend to be more conservative, Texas, uh, the Deep South, um, Oklahoma, Kansas, um, a, a lot of times the places where people struggle, uh, the, the, the places where people really appreciate the message is when we start talking about the fiscal impact of certain development patterns and uh, the way that uh, that impacts you know your decision making and your fragility I think where people tend to struggle is um, some of the impacts then around okay well maybe all this suburban housing isn't that great then and maybe we need to get people out walking I, I feel like that's a obstacle that's actually easy to overcome. And part of it is my kind of conservative background. I found those audiences very easy to talk to and find common ground to and kind of move them on. They, they speak my language. Um, when I go to, for example, the West Coast in particular, the Pacific Northwest in, in, in specific, um, I often really, really struggle and I struggle not because we don't share common assessment of the problems, mm. uh, and not because we don't see kind of common structural things we want to deal with, um, but a lot of those places which tend to be more left of center really have, I think, an overabundance of confidence in their capacity to solve the problem with like a big solution. And that's where, like, California has, in a sense, become like a caricature to me in many ways because, of, you know, from the very first time I went there as part of Strong Towns, it was, hey, what's the, what's the three-point plan, dude? Like, what's the, what's the thing we can enact in Sacramento that's going to solve this? What's, like, the big proposal we can do? And I, I think where people left of center have a natural embrace of a lot of our insights and a lot of the impact on humans that it has... Um, where they struggle is with the uh, the incremental part. Boy, Chuck, um, I see the answer. The answer is this big program. Why don't you just get on board with this? Mm. And, you know, it's hard to point out that like the problems we're dealing with now today were because the progressives of 80 years ago said, hey, here's how we solve this problem of the city. Let's build highways. Um, let's do <laughs> urban renewal. Let's create a, a government-backed, uh, uh you know mortgage program uh you know to lower housing costs and i think where i struggle uh with the left of center is um is that is Mm. i don't have i don't have grand solutions for everything you know the the incremental things where the struggle is
1: but i will say that you know right now i'm working on our strong america tour which if anyone listening hasn't heard of that, Strong America is um, our opportunity to show your first book to the world. And um, we are doing it in sort of an unusual way where we are picking out towns where we want to go, for the most part, from a very long list of places that want us to go there. And a lot of them are majority liberal communities facing local elections, including some ones that, you know, without revealing too much, we haven't officially announced all these events yet, are pretty high profile in the news. So totally I think weird. that there is a real appetite for this stuff, um, especially among liberal communities that are questioning the kind of what used to be progressive doctrines in the age of urban renewal and are now saying we want, to, we want progressivism to progress. We want to talk about how we can do things on the block level, how we can give communities... Um, autonomy over their spaces in a way that is going to make our whole places more financially resilient. And I'm really excited to see how those conversations go. And, you know, just wanted to give a shout out to our mysterious Strong America uh, markets.
0: I feel like like where you and I find the most common ground and where uh, we find the most common ground kind of across if we want to say just the political boundaries that we've come to define as like red and blue in general is the closer we get to the local level. You know, the closer we get to the block level, the closer we get to the space humans inhabit together. I think the more those kind of distinctions melt away and the more we can talk about real issues, how they impact you, how they impact your neighbor, how you can work together. There's a lot of, um, I always feel weird when I start talking like this but there's a, there's a lot of like love and empathy and, and compassion that people have uh, for each other. And when you can put them in a place where that manifests, yeah. the conversations get really, really, really good.
1: Yeah, looking forward to those on the tour. Let's go to a pre-submitted question by Michael. Um, Michael says, I love your ideas, but I can't shake the fact that your core premise states that the economic inefficiency of sprawling towns, use his language, and uh, yet government demands less money to operate these inefficient towns than it does for efficient cities. I live in New York City, which has the highest density in the country. That means fewer pipes, fewer power lines, um, fewer roads, less free street parking, etc. Um, per capita. But I also have an income tax bill that's about double what it was in the less density of Boston when I lived there. And if I were in rural Texas, I'd be billed far less than even Boston. Of course, we're paying for social programs, um, but shouldn't the efficiency of our dense infrastructure balance out those expenses? So the core of this question for me yeah. is, you know, if I live in a place that's so 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 financially productive, why is my personal tax bill so high? Um, let's let's talk about that because that's not a side of things we get into all the time here at StrongHounds.
0: Right. It's actually I've had a, a a small handful of people kind of banging on me a little bit this week too about. Uh, well, you know, in New York City, it's so expensive to build anything and out, you know, in Texas, it's not. And so, you know, we should, uh, you should, you should calculate like the waste of the bureaucracy in yeah. your calculations. Um, here's, the, here's the way that I would explain this. Uh, and this might be dissatisfying to people. Um, but I, I think this is like one way to think through this if you took the uh the the pension liabilities the uh the the debt the basically like the overhang the 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 kind of weight of things weighing down a city like new york city and a city like dallas for example and you somehow like just magically cleared those away and reset so a huge part of the the New York tax bill is is paying for these legacy things. If you just could clear that all out and just start over, um, what you would find is that the I I think what you would find is that the tax situation would be the way this guy describes it. You you would actually have lower taxes in the productive place of New York, and you would have much higher taxes in in uh, in a place like Dallas or Houston. Um, I think what would happen. On the other hand, is that you would also be able to take care of and sustain with the productivity in a place like New York, everything that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in a place like Houston, you would see, you know, a lot of this stuff would have to be let go. Um, you know, you would not be able to, to maintain and take care of it all. So these are complex systems. Uh, you know, a, a place like New York tends to be very progressive. They bite off a lot. Um, there's a lot of different social things that they're layering on top of and counting on their underlying financial productivity to take care of. Um, my contention would be if they had, if New York had the financial productivity of say Houston, they would have gone broke a long time ago, like a long, long, long time ago. It's the fact that they are so financially productive that has allowed them to kind of get to the point where they're at. Um, you know, it, it, and and I I, I it's hard to tease that out because i get like the argument that okay why isn't san francisco uh you know why isn't new york why isn't vancouver why don't these places have low taxes because they're so productive it's because you've layered on all these other things um there's a Mm -hmm. great new york times series uh last year the year before about how ridiculously expensive it is to do any kind of infrastructure repair or infrastructure investment in New York City um, because you're layering in all these union contracts and what what in Minnesota we would just call like legal kickbacks. You know, I've got to pay this organization and this thing and I got to go through this program and I got this port authority I've got to essentially like work with that's going to add 25% cost to everything. These are like legacy programs of these places. Um, They're propped up by the productivity of the place. That doesn't mean that they make sense or that they should endure. I'm also not going to argue that they should go away. I mean, I think that that's New York's issue to solve. Mm. Um, What what we obsess about is the underlying productivity. And without the productivity of New York City, they would have had to deal with all those things a long time ago.
1: Yeah. Exactly, and like every time I hear someone say like this kind of question about places like New York and New York really is we should say the serious outlier in the united States of america yeah it's not there's like no other
0: place like it right it,
1: well, and in the world almost, but especially the u s um, like that's not an argument for not building a financially productive place. The fact that you might someday have to deal with union contracts and frankly corruption and other things, uh, having a fundamentally Productive development pattern is still something you should want, and you know there needs to be another nonprofit that deals with how to you know dismantle some of the other systems of feedback that have made it challenging to make the subway better and things like that. I think that that's a little outside the strong towns conversation, but I'm happy to talk about it in settings well, like these. Yeah, I wrote
0: a, I wrote an article uh, about four or five years ago now called the foolproof, the foolproof city,
1: mm-hmm. and, and
0: the the insight I was trying to share in that article is that when we build our cities in this like historically financially productive way, they become in a sense foolproof. Uh, you can have incompetent leadership and overcome it and not have everything fall apart. You, you can have things that don't work out for a decade mm-hmm. or a generation and essentially like overcome it because it's foolproof. You've got this productive, adaptable, resilient landscape And you can have good government or bad government uh, layered on top of that, and everything's not going to go bad. One of the things that we've created with our kind of hyper-centralized kinetic growth kind of system Mm. is that you have to have very, very competent government and very competent management to make it work out over the long term. And uh, you you just, I mean, This is, this is always my argument with the big, like progressive centralized policies is like, if the policy doesn't work with someone like Donald Trump as president, then it doesn't work <laughs> right. Right? Because, because ultimately you will get someone, I mean, Rome ultimately got Nero, you know, like you, you will have in just the cycle of democracy, good leadership and bad leadership. And a good system is one that is robust to bad leadership. Yeah. Um, New York City is today robust to bad leadership. It it has enough uh, fallback and resiliency and financial productivity uh, to work really well, even if you don't have good policies overlaid on top of it. A place like Houston is not that way. And Houston's able to kind of cover up for it with this kinetic growth. But if you can't generate increasing accelerating levels of growth you you, that bad leadership that is going to appear from time to time is going to take down your system yeah This, this is when i talk about detroit you know everybody has their own narrative for detroit and you know detroit was greedy unions and detroit was greedy corporations and detroit was you know banks exploiting a desperate city and detroit was corrupt politicians Detroit was just fragile and and you know if you have those things which cities will from time to time have uh, you've got to be able to withstand them and overcome them and If you become as fragile as Detroit became as lo- as low on the productivity scale as it became, you can't overcome those things,
1: yeah. Ooh, bummer. Let's go to another bummer. Um, so, this is a live one from Mark Baker. Oh, before I do that, let me just encourage all the troublemakers on the chat channel to put your questions in QA. I see some little rapscallion named John Reuter. He's on our board. Yeah, he's a
0: troublemaker.
1: Oh, no good, John. Um, but we do have one here from Mark Baker that I think is interesting. Please discuss the challenges in advocating for Strong Towns principles regarding the fiscal impacts of our development pattern in cities that have a large LGA. Or other d- direct state aid. So property tax is such a small part of the budget. Non-planner here. LGA means what local exactly? Gover- local t-
0: government aid.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah. Go ahead and so, tackle out.
0: Let me give you a uh, let me let me give you a quick history of cities in the second generation of the post-war development pattern. So first generation was this big horizontal expansion of cities, the, the dawn of auto commuting suburbs, this kind of quick kinetic growth. The second generation was when those first generation liabilities started to come due. And like, what do we do? How, 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 do, we, how do we keep growing? How do we keep this system going? And, and it was a, an idea of how do we become more efficient? How do we become more streamlined? How do we create more growth? And one of the big ones that we came up with in the 70s and Minnesota did this, a lot of states did this, was we're going to get rid of essentially local control. We're going to take from cities the idea of um, you can have your own tax policy, you can have your own uh, business licensing approach, you can have your own local concoction of regulations. We're going to strip away all that authority and we're going to say we're going to have one statewide program to do that. And so any new business coming in, any new enterprise starting up, think of Walmart or, you know, uh, think of uh, Walgreens or think of McDonald's. You can come in and in Minnesota, you don't have to go to Brainerd and then St. Cloud and then Wadena and negotiate a separate thing. You just do it all. It's like one open. We're open for business. It's all the same. So just come in with confidence. Mm. And, and, Part of that trade-off then is they went to cities and they said, look, your local voters are a pain in the neck. When you try to raise their taxes and when you try to do things, they say no. And when you try to spend money, they come to city hall and they protest and they say, that's a waste of money. We shouldn't do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of all your local tax structure and we're going to take it all to the state. And then what we will do, because we're going to grow and we're going to have all kinds of money, is we will give that then to you. And so immediately what happened is that the states had more money, the local governments had less stress because they didn't have to talk about taxation and stuff to people. And the state, through local government aid and other aid, started giving money directly to cities. You could buy that new fire truck. You could buy that, it fix up that park. You could pave your roads. And what we saw in the 70s and early 80s was this just flowering of investment by local governments because they were getting money from the state. Well, what happened over time? <laughs> the, that, that growth model went through its boom now you've got all these legacy costs it starts to slow down the state has other commitments the state has other things they have to to spend money on and now all of a sudden that local government aid stream has started to dry up and got less and less and less um so the question you know that mark has is what what do we do about these places that are in a sense dependent on local government aid um that's a disaster uh, we've, we have cities in Minnesota where 90% of their budget comes from local government aid and the state occasionally, you know, when they get into a budget shortfall, are they going to cut education? No. Are they going to cut uh, road spending? No. Are they going to cut, uh, you know, healthcare for, you know, the, the voters? Uh, no. What do they cut? They cut local government aid. Right. And so to me, two things need to happen. First, it, it, states are not living up to the commitment they made in the '70s and '80s, and so that needs to be like recognized. Like we all need to understand and recognize that this was a bad trade; it didn't work. And the second thing that needs to happen then is we need to start reversing it. So yeah. we need to give cities uh, who have all this dependency on state aid a broader toolbox to start cultivating their own garden, to start building their own resiliency. We need to give them the capacity to do a lot of things for themselves that we've taken away from them. That's gonna be messy. It's gonna be inefficient. It's gonna be not happy for Walmart and McDonald's. Um, But at the end of the day, I'll give you the Minnesota example. If you're a mining city in the Iron Range, or you're a Twin Cities suburb, or you're an ag city on the Iowa border, you have the same exact tax structure. Mm. That makes no sense. These cities are very different in very different places with very different economies. They should have different tax structures.
1: Right.
0: And, and so I don't know as much we can do at the city level if the state is gonna give you basically, you know, two blunt instruments. They're gonna give you a, a, a big uh, hammer and a level, and they're gonna tell you to build a house and you don't have a saw, you don't have a nail, you don't have, you know, a tape measure, you can't do it. These cities need more tools. That's the, that's, I think the end answer to Mark's question.
1: Thanks so much for that. Let's go to another question about small cities um, in particular, because it sounds like I just learned a lot about local government aid, which I didn't know existed (laughs) before this webcast. Um, But Kristen in Ohio, an Ohio city that shall remain nameless, it sounds, um, says this, I'm the new city planner of a small city in Ohio but I that I believe the is economically strong in, in many ways and is undergoing redevelopment in the downtown and some older neighborhoods due to renewed enthusiasm for residents. I know about revitalization projects. I know about planning principles. What I don't have are the tools in my kit to deal with the issue of renter-occupied properties that are falling apart. What options are out there for providing help to these people? What carrots and sticks can I use to prompt landlords to fix major issues? Condemnation is a serious consequence to the renter as well as the landlord. The True. city has done well at addressing maintenance in the right of way, streets and area parks, but those efforts have not translated into the same kind of investment from the private side. Give me some sort of strong towns primer on this topic. I could use it here." I'm curious what you think as a landlord as well. And I can give my perspective on this too, but go ahead. Well,
0: yes. Um, I I think that there's two important things to point out here. One is this idea of, of market failures, failures, not working. And and they, they happen. They happen all the time. You and I talked about this last week on upzoned. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And, And, and how, you know, there, when the city, was it in Alabama Uh,
1: Mobile Alabama. Mm -hmm. Yep,
0: yep. Step back and looked and said, you know, okay, we think this is like a huge systematic problem. They actually found out that it's a very small, like isolated problem that was being kind of uh, interpreted as larger than it was because of its geographic distribution. And so it allowed them to kind of focus on it a little bit differently. I I think the broader question though, for me is really about how do we deal with... um, the, the, the I'll, I'll use the term slumlord, but how do we deal with the person who has bought the rental property with a business model that says, I am going to charge whatever rent I can get, but my business strategy is to not invest in this property, to not fix the roof, to not paint the siding, to do as minimal amount of maintenance as I can because I'm just kind of riding this thing down the slope of decline. Right. Um. There are enforcement ways to deal with that, and and it seems like this planner is well versed in those. Right. And I agree with her that those have consequences for the renter as well. Yeah. Um, to me, there's only one real, there's only one real way to systematically deal with this, and that is you have to change the trajectory of the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, the, 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 <sighs> I'm not trying to be pithy about it because it's a very real problem, but the long-term thing is the the Oswego model in New York. We actually have to get properties in the neighborhood appreciating faster than properties in the region so that what happens is that the business model of declining uh, investment becomes a not viable business model in that neighborhood. If, if, Property is appreciating and tax rates are going up, and the people, uh, you know, the, that that you're getting costs added on to what you're charging for rent. Um, you reach a point as the slumlord of that property where you have to make some decisions on where you're going to go. Am I going to either a invest in improving this property, or am I b going to exit this market? In which case, someone else will come in and, and buy that property. Right. Um. That still doesn't get that still doesn't get at the poor person who needs a place to live because what i 'm talking about is like raising the value of the property and and ultimately raising the rents um, that's where I think we have to start talking about adding incremental units throughout a neighborhood um, we need to allow not only accessory apartments but single family homes to be converted into duplexes, garages to be turned into living units We need to have a whole like Palette of living units that are allowed in a neighborhood, so that people can, uh, you know, offer those at rates people can afford. But but the rental property that's in decline, the way that that is systematically dealt with is the neighborhood has to be going in a, in a in an upward direction, at a pace greater than the regional upward direction, and that's how you change like the underlying business model of the people who would just ride that slope of decline.
1: I think that's absolutely right, and the one thing I would add to that, and this is something you and I have talked about a lot, is um, it falls outside of the planning scope, but how can you relocalize your banking landscape? Because that's one of the main reasons, at least in my city and I suspect in yours, I've spent a lot of time in small towns in Ohio, Shout out to Cartland and Sugar and Falls and Bainbridge and all this. Um, But I basically in St. Louis, where I live now, and also in around Cleveland, where I grew up, there are vast tracts of building where the only business model that makes sense is to buy a building for a very low price in cash, charge a rent that's a little bit more than the poor people who are in there can afford so that they won't hit you up for any sort of service because they will be evicted if they do. And just milk it as long as you can because those buildings are not viable by people who have a mortgage, who have an interest um, in making their home a safe and ex- and beautiful place to live. Um, so you're relying on the goodwill of people who um, have every incentive to let buildings fall into complete disrepair. So how can you change the incentives underneath that? How can you make it accessible for a, low-income family to buy a suitable building at their price point and get a mortgage on it because they don't have the capital to come up with a 25% down payment or more likely the full purchase price of the building because no bank will touch it. So that's the one thing I would add from the gritty urban landlord perspective.
0: Yeah. Well, I also think, you know, you're a good example. Uh, If if you could give me two models of rental, um, one model being a thousand people with one rental unit each. So in other words, a thousand people who are renting out a bedroom or a basement apartment or an accessory apartment um, versus 10 landlords with a hundred units each. Give me the thousand any day. I mean, it's messier. It's more chaotic. Uh, You're going to have, you know, more varied results. You're going to have people who are total jerks who screw that up, but, but it's going to be on an individual basis and correctable. And the whole model will have feedback as opposed to like 10 landlords where now you've got systematic issues. And uh, I, I, I much prefer the thousand.
1: Yeah. Let's get a thousand landlords in here. I like that. Let's get a thousand landlords. Exactly. I really, I really do. And I'm constantly trying to encourage people to become landlords when they have the means and trying to raise the lower the bar. So people with fewer means can become landlords. That's something that I think is really crucial in our places. Well, Um, I I think it's
0: important too. you know, the historic model of, of housing people has been, I mean, I, I read this book once where like the, um, the uh there's a family and the husband died in like a mill accident and the 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 widow and like three kids what do they do to make ends meet they rented they turned their place into like an airbnb and they rented out um not an airbnb like a, a bed and breakfast and they rent out like two rooms and they'd serve breakfast to people in the morning and it was like a way they supplemented their income um this is like a very common historic model around the world Um, When we take that ability away from people, we force them into the nine to five job, the mortgage, the, the, we, we force them into a certain lifestyle that we've defined as American uh, that really is a a lot more like serfdom than it is like freedom and liberty.
1: You're telling me sister. Okay. Let's go (laughs) to, um, let's go to a question from, you know, this person listed themselves as anonymous attendee, but then put their name in the question. I'm going to leave cool. them in. For now, just to add to the air of mystery, um, I am a citizen of a small town in northeast Iowa. Our debt is astronomical. We have a community of 1,000 and debt over a million. We are a county with 10,000 and debt at 37 million. Um, and to add to the point, we have crumbling sewer and water systems that we ignore in order to build more housing to entice a new company to move here. It sounds like pretty familiar to you and I, Chuck, I'm pretty yes. sure. Um, and we ignore the foundation of our community. I am looking for a formula to help my city council determine when to say yes to a project. Any insight would be helpful. This is a question we get a lot in this in these terms. So I just wanted to take a moment to revisit it specifically from the perspective of a very small town that's in a whole lot of debt. What would you say to the anonymous attendee, attendee in Northeast Iowa?
0: Um, well, I, I'm going to say this and this is not going to sound very nice um, or, or, or very proper, especially in Northeastern Iowa. Um, there's a saying in the banking business, you know, if, if you owe the bank $1,000, the bank owns you. Uh, if you owe the bank $10 million, you own the bank, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Because
0: uh-huh. at that point, like the bank needs you to repay to stay around um there's a lot of cities and and when we talk about northeastern iowa i'm very familiar with it i'm very familiar with small towns where you've got you know a thousand people and a million dollars in debt like this is insanity this never this never should have happened um and i think what is going to happen um not just in the northeast iowa city um, but I think just in general, in our population, we are going to experience something akin to a debt jubilee
1: mm. in,
0: in the near future. And that debt jubilee might be an actual forgiveness of debt. I mean, you have people running for president now today who are saying, we're going to forgive this debt and forgive that debt. And, um, or it may just be like a period of a decade with high inflation. You know, we've got the Federal Reserve trying to get inflation up higher. Um, if we ran eight to ten percent inflation for 6, 7, 8, 10 years, um, what you would find is that a uh, million dollars in debt was not that much. Um, you know, you it would also take you a thousand dollars to fill your car with gas, um, and poor people would like desperately suffer from that. And it would, but it would essentially like reset conditions. Um, I know really smart people who have stepped back and looked at that problem, that conundrum, and their advice has been, uh, if you already owe the bank, you know, 10 million, <laughs> you own the bank, go ahead and borrow another 10 million. Like, you're not <laughs> going to pay it back anyway. Uh, they know that, you know that. Um, the fact that it's someone's pension, that it's a muni bond rated AAA in someone's, you know, portfolio notwithstanding, what, what you're seeing here is the... Um, what what like economists call the froth on the economy um Mm. or or what like a uh an austrian economist would call malinvestment um these are the places where you can see it most obviously it's it's pervasive and it's everywhere but in places like this it shows up where it's an absurdity and we can look at it and say this is an absurdity so I think the question of you know what what's a formula to determine when to say yes to a project, when you're talking about debt, like I don't think there is I, at, at the yeah. point you're at, I don't think there is a formula, right? You're not going to repay that debt. Something like dramatic is going to happen to fix that situation. Either you're going to default on it and just not pay it, um, or. Uh, you're going to have uh, some type of inflationary process that you go through along with everybody else in the country where that debt is in a sense normalized to your income and, uh, and you're going to deal with it that way. Either of those are like ridiculously painful. So for me, the answer to the question is you've just got to start making sound investments and make sound investments that will be here uh, after this kind of shakeout macroeconomically happens. Um, I've always said that Strong Towns is uh, is not necessarily trying to solve the problem that we're experiencing now. Uh, How do we continue to grow? How do we continue that kinetic growth? How do we keep up? Um, But it's really here to catch us when that system falls apart. So how do we start building good local ecosystems, good neighborhoods in a small town like that? How do we start building local resiliency? Um, Those are the projects to say yes to because those are the ones you're gonna need when this uh, larger shakeout happens.
1: I think that's awesome. I am going to keep us in uh, this live questions for a while because we've got some really good ones that I don't think we're going to get to all of them in the next 15 minutes, but I want to get through as many as we can. So let's start with this one from Jonathan Stevens. Um, and historic downtown theater and community center in my family's hometown has an uncertain future. It's currently closed due to building conditions and is still in need of interior repairs and exterior repairs as a result of Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> Um, The city owns the building and has made minimal repairs in recent years, but it wasn't done properly. Um, Some city council members see it as a money pit and want to demolish it, while others recognize its importance as a pillar of the community and as an effort to revitalize downtown. Inspired by Chuck's article from yesterday, what would a strong town's approach be towards cultural landmarks like these? I would say this reminds me also of your articles about the Brainerd Water Tower, if you want to talk about that.
0: yeah, Yeah, the water tower. (laughs)
1: Um, um sorry. <laughs> no, it's sad. It's sad
0: because um it it feels like this situation is very much the same. And uh, you know, with the water tower here, we're stuck in what the current paradigm is. And the current paradigm, as defined by really the city staff, uh, but with the council members kind of going along, is in uh side A we have completely demolished this structure and turn it into a parking lot or something with a, you know, very low burn cost to the public. Um, and side B is to borrow like a ridiculous amount of money and do some huge fix that will solve this problem for the next hundred years. And like when you, when you're given those two options, you're given the, the option that, you know, the choice between ridiculous and crazy you know, yeah. like those are not those are not the only options that should be on the table. Um, I don't know what kind of damage a hurricane would do to a building or what a hurricane has done to a building. I don't know what like repairs are needed for it to open up. I don't know if those are of the kind where like we have mold and it's unsafe to go in it or yeah. if those are more the kind like well, now the building code is tripped and we need a new, you know, ADA bathroom door and a new sprinkler system. Um, if it's the former, like I'm, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Um, I feel like there's a lot we can do that I've seen done with elbow grease um, that's very underrated. If you go to Water Valley, Mississippi, for example, uh, I was in a building that was completely like the roof had caved in. It had been years that way. It was just a, a terrible mess. Uh, people went out by hand and cleaned it all up, cleaned it all out and, uh, and, and fixed it up. And today it is a great, like prosperous, successful building. Um, it's not like the penultimate building. It's not like every problem has been solved, um, but they got it to a point where they could use it again. And they did it mostly by hand. Um, if it's more the latter variety, though, where it's like, okay, now we've tripped this thing where we've got to solve all these other problems. We've got to put in a sprinkler system. We've got to fix the bathroom so they're ADA compliant. We've got to uh, do, you know, go through your litany of things. Um, I've long said that those are things that the cash flow of the business should help you solve. Um, it 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 feels like here... Uh, a lot like my tower is that there are just not enough choices on the table. There there are not enough options on the table and we need an option. That is the bootstrapping option. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we need the option that is the, how do we get this to like a minimum viable product kind of option. And that may not be like the dream. Everybody has it. It may not mean that the Philharmonic orchestra comes touring to town and stops there. But it may mean that like the local school can use it for their plays or you know, a, a a local group can get together and have a jam session there and invite people from the community. I think you gotta start talking about what's the minimum viable product we can get this to and then iterate along those lines.
1: I think that's a great idea and I would love to go there. So tell us tell what it. that is.
0: <laughs> yeah, tell us what this city is. I would I'd yeah. be very interested no. cool. to know. the sad thing is like if it's in Louisiana, I'm gonna cry because uh <laughs> the louisiana legislature just took a hundred million dollars of the bp oil spill money which to me like that money uh should should go to something like like let's take this building and fix it up right like that no they just took a hundred million of it and gave it to the uh the people in shreveport that want to build the highway through the allendale neighborhood
1: no we've read about that a lot so no i know Strongtowns.org slash Shreveport if you want to know why I'm tearing up my hair. Right. <laughs> so. No,
0: it's 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 maddening. And so, you know, you you look and it's like these community endowment kind of things, like what the BP oil spill money should be, um, are things to be like difference makers in things like this. Um, you know, what 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 kind of resources are needed to get this up to a minimum viable product? And what do you have there? And then how do we take this community endowment and like be the difference maker in that? That, that to me is like a really great use of local money. Um, we're gonna build a highway through a poor neighborhood. and it's-
1: <laughs> Well, Jonathan has assured us, um, he just wrote it in the chat, that it's the Sanger Theater and Community Center in Biloxi, Mississippi. So All right. bullet dodge. <laughs> Jonathan, keep us posted on that project though. That yeah. sounds Cool. Well, and
0: Jonathan, you, you've got to be able to go to Water Valley too. Um, go to Water Valley. There's a guy there named Mickey Hawley. He runs their Main Street Association downtown. One of the most dynamic Main Street coordinators in the country you're going to run into. And sh- ask him this question because yeah. he's the guy actually doing it on the ground who has, has helped, you know, with a community of people there do this, take a city that was falling apart and bring it back. And I, I think you could learn a ton from uh, – what they've done there.
1: Yeah, message us if you need his email. Let's go to one from Carlos Perez. Um, our city is having a debate concerning ADUs, accessory dwelling units, for those new to that acronym, to increase our housing stock and address affordable housing. But people don't want to change the character of their neighborhood with ADUs. No surprise. What is the Towns perspectives for both pro and con? We have talked a lot on Strong Towns about the pros of ADUs. We're big fans. Are there any cons, Chuck? I'm curious if you have thoughts on this or is there no a no that's a it's a, it's
0: a good question and i think it's it's only fair to ask right yeah um like why would people oppose adus um it, it, it's really interesting because our core kind of in insight at the neighborhood level is that neighborhoods need to breathe and grow and evolve and to me um if you're not going to allow adus then the question I have is like, what's your next level of evolution? Like what, what is your, it's a little like saying, you know, to a, to a a little kid, like, we're, we're not going to allow you to uh, read, you know, like, okay, how do I grow intellectually then if I can't read? Like, what's the outlet? Is is it audio books? Like, I don't know what it is. Um, To me, like a neighborhood has to be able to breathe and grow and change and evolve. And if, If ADUs aren't part of that, what what is? Like, what is? And this is where the character thing comes in. I mean, there's a lot of people say, like, I don't want the character of my neighborhood to change. Um, If you don't allow the character of your neighborhood to change in a way that makes it more productive, um, then what happens is that you guarantee that the only way it can change is downward. The only way it can change is failure. Um, and that might that might take decades. I mean, you might be able to have a concentration of wealthy people and extend out your prosperity to, you know, a, a period of time. Uh, but we've all seen neighborhoods. I mean, I, I remember when I went to college, I lived in a mansion. Uh, I lived in a mansion with with 13 other guys because that mansion had run into decline and a neighborhood in decline had been turned into, a, you know, a house that was rented out to a, a bunch of college students. Yeah. Um, even the fanciest house goes, you know, if it's in a neighborhood that can't evolve and change, will eventually reach a decline phase. So why would someone be against ADUs? Um, besides the community character argument, like, I, you know, I don't want them, I don't want my neighbor to have a, a, a rental unit in their backyard, or I don't want my neighbor to have, uh, you know, their mother-in-law living in their backyard. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the only thing I can think of, uh, and, and I I welcome other people in the comments and the chat to, to say their own, you know, non-character argument. Um, (laughs) You know, I, we get a lot of pushback recently from the kind of hyper Yimby group, uh, which, you know, has argued that, you know, ADUs aren't up to the task and incremental growth isn't up to the task. Mm -hmm. Um, If you, allow neighborhoods to evolve and change. Um, I think the immediate reaction to that would be to lower underlying property values um, because you'd get out of the the big developer, big tower kind of mentality. Okay. And I do think that there is a certain argument that could be made that until you ramped up uh, local developers, local small builders, like an ecosystem of people building things, that you could have a short-term housing shortage that you couldn't fill incrementally, in a sense. Yeah. Um, right. But I feel like that's a that's a transition problem that would solve itself very quickly, and in ways that were really beneficial, you know, for employment and opportunity and empowerment, particularly amongst people who struggle in today's current economy. So I'm right. I'm I maybe don't I'm maybe not good at the con part of that.
1: <laughs> it's okay. I mean the only one I can think of is like, what if we had some transformative ADU bill where like every house had to build one right now? Like that's not like not really a thing. <laughs> so
0: I'm yeah, and I actually I actually feel like if if people were allowed to do it and were allowed, you know, if the if the evolution of a neighborhood was something that was allowed. I've, I've, there, there are market forces that would drive some of this. I mean, I, the people that I know that have built ADUs are saying, like, this is a source of wealth for me. Like, I can bring in, uh, you know, the same as if I was working a fourth more at a job. Yeah. So, like, you know, this is, this is good income for me.
1: Right, right. Someone in the comments is saying that parking and noise are two big obstacles that they've run into in their community. I mean, we've talked a lot about parking as an argument, Chuck. Um, but how do you answer those objections? Yeah,
0: the, the noise one is kind of annoying because you right. know, single neighbors can be noisy and sure. you, know, you live in a city. Like you got to talk to each other. Um right. I think the parking one is, is obviously the, like the interesting uh, chicken and egg discussion because the way you get to where you don't need more parking for more development is to have more people. Um, the more people that are walking, the more like of an ecosystem you have, the less reliant uh, the businesses are on drive-up traffic and the more reliant they become on walk-up traffic. Um, what's the transition from one to the other, right? Yep. Like what's it, and, and, and it, for, for me, the places that I've seen successfully go through that has just gone through it, right? I've just like pushed through it and right. said, you know, we're just going to, like we're starting here, we want to get to here, let's just go. And they don't fret over the parking side of it. I can okay. see I can see people living in a neighborhood fretting over it, right? Sure. Like I, I, I get yeah. that, but to me, those are like the, I wrote this whole part section of the book on subsidiarity and the subsidiarity uh, concept is the one that, you know, decisions should be handled at the lowest level that they can be. Um, And oftentimes like uh, conservatives will latch onto that and say, you know, Big government is corrupt. and It's really not that. It's really not that at all because it's a very Catholic concept and Catholics have a very strong hierarchy. If you don't know, there's this guy called the Pope. He's kind of in charge. You know, there's a a very strong hierarchy in the Catholic church. So it's not like you're against hierarchy or centralization. Um, But the idea is that, and this gets back to the service model, um, if people can make a decision, they must make that decision. You can help them reach it But if you, you know, if you look at like a block and say, how are you going to manage parking on this block? If that becomes like the city's problem to solve, then it's just something we all bitch about. We pay our taxes and complain about. If it's like the neighborhood's deal to solve, there's actually ways to work together to solve that problem. Right. And and I think a lot of times what happens is that we make that a public problem when it's actually a neighborhood level problem that, that people should work together to figure out.
1: And I will say as a landlord of a duplex that was vacant and then all of a sudden was uh, housing five people, each of whom had a car. We got a little pushback from our neighbors, but then they said we'd rather have, you know, nice neighbors who, and like have to park three feet away than we used yeah. to. So yeah. there's, there's ways is all I'm going to say.
0: We have, uh, we have a parking issue in our alley Um, just because like a whole bunch of people park back there. And the reality is, is we just kind of all try to respect each other and work around each other. And you know what? It works pretty well.
1: Yeah, well, very cool. That's about what we have time for today. If we didn't get to your question, we do save them for the future. And you can always email us at team at strongtowns.org. Hop on Slack at strongtowns.org slash Slack to talk to all kinds of folks. We have about a million ways to get your questions answered Help.strongtowns.org. That's our knowledge base. Like we will get you covered if you didn't get your question answered today. Thank you so much for uh, following the Strong Towns movement. Welcome to all of our new members. This is one of the biggest um Astrong Towns we've had in a while, and I think you are why. And keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks so much, everyone.
0: Thanks, Kia. Thanks, everybody.
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Oh, they know that America's one big pothole right now.
0: Oh, la, la. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver
1: bullet solutions. Chuck Moron, this has been fascinating.